She started in the finance department at Universal and ended up as the head of international distribution at Fox. Edwards has been associated with some of the greatest TV shows and movies of all time and was kind enough to share some of her memories of her incredible career with Here Comes Pod. And in a first for the show, there was so much gold in her stories that this week's episode is a two-parter. So here's part one of my chat with Marion, where we covered the early part of her career at Universal, her move to MGM, and the boom time at Fox. Enjoy. Hi, Marion. Welcome to the pod. Thank you. Thank you very much. Great to have you on board. I always start with a, a fun little question to get the creative juices going. So. In this particular case, the thing that I was interested to know was, and I don't know if you've seen this film, but there's a great British film called A Matter of Life and Death. And uh, in that movie, David Niven plays a World War II airman who has to plead for his case and the right to come back to Earth in the heavenly court so that he can be with his true love who he's met in uh, strange circumstances. And he can choose anybody from the great, figures and great people in history really from the whole of human history to represent him and and actually ends up choosing one of his very close friends and so my question to you is this if you were in the place of that David Niven character and you could choose one buyer one salesperson a colleague to represent you in the celestial court who would you choose well you know it's an interesting question and a nice spin on the good place if you know that series right where you're they're constantly making a case for why they should be allowed into the good place um i would have to say after all the years and all the people and god there are many and they stretch back many many years i would have to to pick two women who are both very good friends and have been work colleagues business colleagues of mine both uh, from a business sense and on the creative side uh, with one of them it's just been an extraordinary time and they know me very well. And I would think you would want someone to defend you who knows you very well and can put up a good fight on your behalf. I would have, have to pick Sophie Turner Lang, who could probably represent anyone, the devil, and get them into the right, into the good place. And also Gail Berman, who is a, a long-term, long, long-time friend of mine and who, oddly enough, I introduced Sophie Turner Lang in New Orleans at a nappy a hundred years ago when she was producing Malcolm in the Middle. So anyway, I, those are the two people I would pick. Okay, well, that sounds like a very strong team. Uh, and I, I suspect you'd be back down in earth very, very quickly. <laughs> so you talked about Nappy for many, many years ago. And so it's a good way of thinking about how you started in the business. Were you a big film fan and a TV fan when you were growing up? Well, I grew up in a small town in Idaho called Pocatello. It's a very small town and next to an Indian reservation. And there wasn't much going on there. And movies were a window to me to what life in other places could look like. And 
what became a very aspirational experience for me as a child. And television, somewhat less at that point, because, I mean, I did run home from school and watch the Mickey Mouse Club and that kind of thing. But that didn't try to lead you into imagining what your own life might be. But anyway, it was uh, very much something that was a big part of my life when I was growing up. My, both my brother and I have ended up in the entertainment industry. And my father was a doctor. My mother was a nurse. She worked on the Indian reservation, very, very socially active. And so for both of us to somehow emigrate to the West Coast and both of us end up in the entertainment industry has been amusing to us all of our adult lives. And how did you get started in the film and television business? Well, I was living and working in San Francisco uh, at the end of my hippie era. And my brother had gone to Los Angeles. He was an architect and he had been hired at Universal because Universal at that time was, a, it was almost like a, a television series factory. They produced so much content. He had been hired there and he said, you cannot believe how many jobs there are here. And at that point, I was working as a Kelly girl, which is probably not even in existence any longer. It was like a temporary employment agency. And also was designing costumes at the Berkeley Repertory Theater, which was a most a free job, by the way. I wasn't paid for it. So I decided to move down to L.A. kind of in the era of what have you got to lose sort of thing. And I came down and I was hired at Universal, but in the accounting department, which was hilarious to me because of all the things I have never had any facility with, it's math. So to be hired in the accounting department was kind of stupid, but I, I figured I had an adding machine and a reasonably sharp ability to run the machine and look at the numbers and have them make some kind of sense. And oddly enough, I was assigned to work in the international television group. So, you know, again, international part of that great, like I want to live this wonderful movie life became something kind of interesting to me. And when a job opened up as the assistant to the event, senior vice president of Universal International Television. I really, really, really wanted that job. And I must have interviewed for it, gosh, somewhere along six, seven times. The gentleman I was working for and was eventually hired by in that job was Bob Bramson, who was just the most wonderful person. And I always was so grateful that he decided he had this little entry-level job and he decided to hire someone from the ranks of the employee already employed at Universal and not the child of a friend. And I'll never forget, he said to me, I, I'm sorry to call you back to talk so many times, but if I hire you, I'll spend more time with you than I do with my wife. And I really want to make sure that we have rapport. And he finally hired me and I worked for him, gosh, for a number of years. And the only problem I would say I had at Universal was it was a very older man-dominated studio. It was still in the era of Lou Wasserman. Jules Stein was no longer in the building all the time, but it was very much a, a gray suit, black tie, man-dominated environment. So when it came time for me to start to expand my responsibilities and to, to have you know, the ability to travel, to make trips and do things, it was kind of hard because it was almost like he was sending his daughter out into the work world. And he was very, wanted to make sure nothing would go wrong and I, nothing would ever happen to me. And, and, you know, like a Disney character, you've got to be, you have to, your parents have to let you go. If not die completely, you have to be out in the world to have an adventure. So he did his best and I just loved him to death. And eventually he retired. And then very shortly after that, 
I went to work for Tony Lynn at MGM. And that is for all that it was by far the shortest, my shortest tenure anywhere. It was the most colorful. So I think you were MGM for about three years and then it was over to Fox. So how would you describe the studio at that point when you joined? Because I guess it was about to go through some very rapid change and evolution quite quickly in that period. On several, I think it's fair to say that on several levels, and I can't remember exactly the chronological order. I was hired by Jim Giannopoulos, a man named Bill Saunders, who'd been running the, the division for decades prior to his arrival, had retired. Jim had been hired, and he hired me. And... Jim and I took over and Jim didn't have any prior experience. And I, of course, had a ton of experience and there was a lot to understand because when I was at Universal, we avoided any relationships with the Kirsch group and the Berlusconi media set. And we had avoided all of that. And of course, at MGM, we didn't have enough content to make a meaningful deal with any major, (laughs) any, any major company like that. But at at Fox, all those relationships existed. And so there was a lot to navigate, a lot to learn there. Uh, At the same time, Rupert had, as he always has, a lot of plans and a lot of ambitions for the international marketplace. But I guess the other thing about Fox was that it it had always been a big feature film producer and distributor with a fantastic Mm -hmm. library and it had done tv shows i think mash and you know there are probably a bunch of other really great standout shows but not of the same scale of universal over the years but what really changed over this period was fox broadcasting and network tv and that became i guess a really important part of the growth of what you were doing internationally Yeah. Well, I think two things happened. First of all, they did have L.A. Law. They had a number of shows. They had a relationship with Stephen Bochco and he was on the lot. Uh, He had his own building. And they also had uh, The Simpsons, you know, which was in the early days, very complicated to distribute internationally. No one had any faith it was going to work. You know, no one had ever seen an adult primetime animated show before. I mean, it was just odd odd on many levels and difficult. And as you say, we had MASH, which was a huge legacy for most of my career. It finally kind of outgrew its broadcast utility, but for many, many, many years, it aired on the BBC, for instance. I mean, it was just hugely popular. And, And the producers of it, of course, never quite grasped that it didn't still retain that same cachet that it had decades ago. But anyway, putting that aside, What happened was, is that Peter Chernin and Peter Roth built a business plan to make a major push into television production. So within about, I guess, 18, 24 months, they had signed just an incredible array of enormously talented television creators. And so from that point on, we started having a lot of television, a lot of television. And I joined in 1992 and in 1993, my first LA screenings, we launched NYPD Blue, and it was the source of an enormous amount of competition. And uh, we had auctions in a number of markets. So it was a really a, a great welcome to Fox kind of gift was getting that show. And again, at the same time in the background, still not nearly as popular as, as it ultimately would become, 
was The Simpsons and a, a handful of other shows that were starting to, and then that just built and built and built until we were nearly back in the same place. I had been at Universal where we were like the kingpin of television content and holding huge, quite long screenings in LA every year. It was a, a real thrill to have some of the content we had. And I guess that also coincided with things like private television networks launching internationally as opposed mm. to just having the public broadcasters. So there was an explosion of capacity and airwaves and uh, deregulation. Mm-hmm. So that combination of more, better, bigger product, the move is consistently being great. And then this increased demand meant that it was a super growth period. Well, it was. And, and it, it, you know, the, the, as I said, it was like grinding on a wave that just continued to go up. It just kept bigger and bigger and bigger and it never crested. It just kept growing. Our margins of increase every year were double digit. It, you know, it was just an extraordinary time and, and huge fun. And the clients were excited, super excited to be in the business. They were building a business that many of which would grow on to be enormously important channels and And, you know, we went from this period of time where it was the small business, as they said, and they would screen 22 and buy seven or nine or whatever. But also was even then it was interesting because you were mostly dealing with arms of the government. Right. The channels represented very much their governments. Frequently, the person who was the head of it would be a a political appointee. One of my most shocking moments was when I was still at Universal, I was looking through a I think it was a Life magazine which has been out of publication for a year, I'm sure. But I was looking through and they always had one photo of the week at the very last page would be a full page picture of, in, in this case, it was of some people being marched down to the beach to be uh, killed, to be, uh, I guess you'd say murdered, but they were being executed in a military coup in Africa. And one of them was my client. So knowing that you had these people who really were deeply entrenched in in making the politics of the government known, one might say, it was uh, a big change to have the commercial element put in where it was a business being run as a business for a business and made a complete change in the, both in the, in your client base and in how you ran your business and how much money you were able to generate. So it's a people business, always a lot of stability in the Fox distribution team. Was that something that you really valued those relationships with Mark Kaner and knowing that there was the evergreen Steve Cornish in the London office (laughs) that you could always rely on? (laughs) We always had a local office to sell content to local broadcasters. We We grew out of an era of, I think, pretty big cultural sensitivity and wanting always to have people who could, in fact, build those relationships keep them healthy and strong and be and be in the in the loop on what was going on and what was likely, you know, when a time slot was coming up, this is something we had, et cetera, et cetera. So I think that, yes, that was important to us. And I think we really, we really benefited from, from our commitment to those relationships with those executives. And hopefully they feel the same way. You know, it was a, a nice period of time to be there. Mark was a, a generous and tended not ever to interfere. You know, he did a lot of work with the Murdochs and with the senior management and consequently left me to 
get on with the business of the business. And as long as I did that, then he was free to do what, what his major focus was. And I was free to build the business and expand it in ways that I felt would be important to us in the long run. So, so it was great. It was a real heyday, one might say, of distribution and of my career. Yeah, it was, it was terrific. And of, of the international territories, is there one that you would look back and say that was the most fun or the most interesting? Uh, any that stand out as being particularly challenging or maybe even one that you in- just enjoyed visiting the most for whatever reason? Well, you know, it's an interesting question because that changed over time. You know, it's like the money always, the biggest money always came out of Europe. And, but there were some territories that were incredibly important regardless of the fact that maybe they didn't generate as much money for reasons that were sometimes political or personal preference or whatever you want to call it. They were important to you. There were markets that were enormously frustrating and I think probably still are where people have never really cracked the code and you you I'm sure have guessed I mean China. I mean when I worked at Universal we were entertaining this is way back we were entertaining delegations of Chinese who would come over and be with host screenings and, and, and conversations with them, which of course were very difficult, and meals and all kinds of things in an effort to try to figure out how to get into business. I mean, I made trips to China where you'd have meeting after meeting after meeting and you'd have a conversation and you'd think you were making some kind of headway, but it was just hard to ever see anything come to fruition. And we could have aired, when I first came to, not when I first arrived, but probably within the first year, I discovered a deal that had been done prior to my arrival, where The Sound of Music, which is, was one of the hugely iconic films that we handled, had been made, made available in China for free for a national broadcast in return for the Chinese soundtrack. And I was just shocked. I mean, completely shocked. Because there was the mindset of my predecessor to think that that was such a noteworthy cultural exchange that free was the right price. And of course, in my world, free was never the right price. I still marvel at that. And of course, we got a soundtrack that was unusable for anything because we never could license the film for money. So we ended up with a Sound, it just, there were things done, but again, I, I said, really indicates the fact that everyone was desperately trying to figure out how to crack the code in China. One time I received a call from the media, from Hollywood Reporter, I think, or Variety, saying, oh, congratulations, we see you have the number one show in China, and they're going to make a local version. I said, really? She said, yeah, Prison Break is the biggest show there. I said, that's so interesting. I've never licensed it in China. <laughs> so... Just one of the many fun stories about working in international. You, you mentioned The Simpsons as well, and it was perhaps a bit of a, a slow burn in some respects. Mm. And even at its height, I know that, uh, for example, talking with David Smith uh, when he was a guest on the podcast, and he said, we really struggled to sell that show in a lot of places, even when it was a really a big success. Does, does that present a problem back in L.A.? dealing with the network and the producers to explain, no, we, it, it doesn't work everywhere. And, and having that conversation. Yes. You know, it's interesting because it wasn't just on the Simpsons, but we had in, in our heyday at 
at Fox, we represented a number of very high profile producers, David Kelly, Stephen Bochco, David Milch, Ryan Murphy, uh, and of course, The Simpsons, which is the big kahuna. And it's always difficult to explain to them because it's, it's very much in their interest to never be that happy with what you're doing because they always want you to do better than you are. Uh, we had not as much trouble with The Simpsons explaining why it couldn't get licensed in a, for instance, a Muslim territory, as we had explaining why a client would take it upon themselves to edit it. And there were a number of things about The Simpsons that were absolutely sacrosanct, but one of them was no changes could be made. They would oversee voices for dubbing to approve the dubbing and the scripts could not be changed. The jokes and the, the, the humor of the shows had to remain exactly the same. Now, it's interesting because not all humor, it translates directly, but one of my worst experiences, and mostly they are charming and delightful people, complicated and difficult, but you cannot argue with success. And they have created one of the most successful television properties of all time, Against the Odds, a primetime animated series. So, but you have to cast your mind back to the early days of The Simpsons when it was so outrageous. I think today it definitely is not because of course we've gone on to Family Guy, et cetera. But in the early days, it was absolutely outrageous. And we had clients in markets where you would have thought they understood and, and would accept the whole concept of, an, of a primetime animated show that were so offended by Bart Simpson that they would not air it. They felt that he would ruin the youth of you fill in the country and would not put it to air. So it was truly those early days were mostly driven by that because it was not licensed widely. But then as it became, and I always say shows tend to become the phenomenon in season three. So it started to build and build and build and the ratings in the US were remarkable. And it just went, you know, really started to take off. And if you look back, it was very funny because we would have people write us letters and say, I think you should know that someone has produced a ripoff of The Simpsons and the characters are all the same, but they look different. And of course, that was the early seasons. And if, it's very funny because if you look back at the early seasons of the show, those characters did look different. You know, they were definitely modified as the show went on. But anyway, it was very complicated, but a lot of people who had trouble, real cultural trouble with the content were interested in trying to find a, a way to make it work. And we would have to simply say, we can't, can't allow any alteration of the content itself. You can't make Bart into a respectful, soft-spoken little boy, not possible. So when it came to our attention, I was just coming back from probably, gosh, MIP or MIPCOM. And it came to the attention, and I, I swear to God, we didn't know what had happened. I think even David may have been involved in this. We didn't know this had happened. The Simpsons producers brought it to our attention, which is never something you want to have happen, that it was airing in the Middle East, and they had turned the, the beer drinking scenes into soda pop, and they'd made all of these changes, which to them made it possible to air it but to us was absolutely forbidden. They hadn't asked our permission. They hadn't passed anything by us for approval, nothing. And that was perhaps the biggest explosion I can recall because 
we had to have them take it off air. The client was enormously insulted. They had had, they had hired very high profile talent to do the voices, the voiceovers, huge embarrassment for them, but an absolutely unacceptable liberty that they took with our content. So there was always that fine line in international of letting people alter a program to be able to air it. Buffy is another excellent example on our side of a show that one of my all-time favorites, but couldn't be aired in prime time. And Sophie did a wonderful thing because she also loved the show, was airing on Sky pretty successfully, but Sky at that point didn't really have the ability to get the ratings that, that a terrestrial broadcaster did. And of course we wanted a terrestrial broadcaster. And at that point they were kind of sharing content. X-Files had been very comfortably shared between Sky and the BBC. So she licensed uh, in coordination with Sky, Buffy, and she would air an edited version that we approved in prime time. And then she would air an unedited version after Watershed. So in essence, built two audiences or one audience who liked to go and watch it in the, you know, once it was out of that time frame where it was family viewing. So, you know, we worked, tried to work as closely as we could with people, but The Simpsons was a product that, that we did not, could not, and we're not allowed to. Uh, have editing or alteration of content. Well, I, I've tried to order Duff Cola many times in my uh, life at the local uh, supermarket, but nobody ever seems to stock it. So <laughs> I guess I guess it's it's Duff beer for for the rest of us. <laughs> 